Psalm 127, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, which is the whole psalm. So would you stand as I read? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks to his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. God of glory, we ask for your help. As we come to your word, would you be our teacher? Would you be our guide? For we confess that this word is to us today. Living and active, God breathed, profitable for us. And so would you, in the power of the spirit, take what is true here and plant it in us. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that are soft to your touch. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, speak. God of glory, speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. In the name of Jesus, have mercy. Amen. At the outset, uh, I want to, uh, some of you may have seen the email where we are grieving with Aaron and Jana Arnold, the loss of their two-year-old son um, overnight. I guess that was late Wednesday night, Thursday morning. Uh, And if you're trying to put the pieces together, uh, this is um, the Jesus Waldo's great-grandson was lost. So continue to pray for Jana and Aaron and Dee and the whole family as it is a profound uh, ache and tragedy losing one so young. Um, particularly as I'm prepared to preach on children and the beauty and the wonder of children. But pray for them, please. Uh, pray also for uh, Stephanie Brazel and her family, the loss of a long-term friend, uh, Becky Melton. We've been, she's been on our prayer list off and on for years, and uh, the Lord called her home earlier this, this morning, so pray for them as well. Um, Wendell Berry, who is a farmer, poet, political activist, Kentuckian. He's an old man now, uh, but he wrote a poem in which he says, uh, when he's, and I can't unpack all of Wendell Berry for you today, but, uh, but he, ta- he says, plant sequoias, plant sequoias, invest in the millennium. He says a lot of other things in this poem, but he says, plant sequoias, invest in the millennium. A sequoia is a, like a redwood in California, they're these gigantic trees that grow huge. There are some that you could drive your car under, and they grow so tall, they grow so big, 
Uh, and Wendell Berry's point is that so often in this world, we are short-sighted. We're short-sighted into the, the idea of immediate gratification. But we're even more short-sighted than that, right? I was, when, when I became a pastor, I heard someone say, uh, you, uh, you overestimate what you, you'll be able to do in a year, and you underestimate what you'll be able to do in 10 years. But we also are short-sighted that we limit things to our scope, to our lifetime. And what Barry is trying to communicate in that poem, when he says, invest in the millennium, invest in in a thousand years, invest in planting sequoias, planting trees that you will never see grow. You'll never see that tree become what it ought to be. You'll never see it come to the point where you could drive your Winnebago through it, but plant it anyway. That the Christian view of children, the Christian view of children is that you are planting something, a planting of the Lord. You're planting something, someone that you will not see blossom, maybe. No, but you, you might see them grow. And maybe you'll even see your, great, your ch- grandchildren grow. You might even see some of your great-grandchildren born, but you will never know the generational impact that you have when you plant children in the Lord. You will never know the generational impact when you plant children in the Lord. Our culture doesn't know what to do with kids. We either want to say they're not really kids until they're born. They're just a clump of cells until they come out. And that's only if the, in some places, that's only if the mother really wants it, the child, which is stupid and ungodly and abomination. Abortion is. But our culture then wants, when children are born, we, we want to say, you're the center of the universe. You have what you want, do what you want, when you want it. And dear ones, that is such an antithetical picture of how we ought to engage with children. When you give a child anything and everything they want, when and how they want it, what you are doing is not generational planting. You are planting a rottenness. That will spread to the next generation and the generation after that. So much so that the the whirlwind that we are presently reaping as a culture and a society is because we treated our... I say we. I wasn't around. But children were treated like that. Catered and served and pedestaled. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my children. I would take a bullet for my children. And as the Apostle Paul says, I die daily for my kids. There are things that I don't do on a daily basis that I would do if I did not have children. There are things that I don't do on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis that I would do if the Lord had not given us children. So there are dreams and aspirations that die. But the goal is a generational planting. 
And so when I say we've grown too short-sighted, our short-sightedness is seen in how we treat our children. We treat them as this, as if their momentary happiness is all that it exists. I tell you, this week has, has tempered my tone, I'll say that with my children. Leaving Jana and Aaron's house in Winsboro and coming home. AJ was born two days after James Allen. And I haven't been able to look at James Allen the same since. They were two days apart, born in the same hospital. They had AJ the day we went back to get James Allen from the NICU. So I'm not saying that we don't delight in our children. We don't want them to be happy. But the greatest thing you can do for your kids is to understand that their long-term, long-term lifetime happiness and their long-term eternal happiness does not hinge on them being happy in the moment. For a tree to become a tree, yes, there has to be protection. There has to be good soil. But it has a direction to grow. If there's no direction, it's just a vine. Grows out flat, trampled on. But in order for a tree to grow as a tree, it must have direction. And as I say this, I want to acknowledge that I have, uh, I have four kids now, but they're all little. They're wee ones. So I'm not coming into you as an expert who's figured this out, you know, say 34 years from now, I'll come to you and say, hey, look at all that we, we were able to do by God's grace. Or look at the train wreck that we made. This is parenting. I don't know. But I'm, I'm in the middle of it. I'm in the middle of it day in and day out. All right. 545, they, they wake up. Or if, if we're lucky, 530. James Allen this morning. Good grief. I'm, I've told you guys the story of how I have to have, read my Bible in the morning. But I, I'm in my red chair uh, and I have to have a headlamp on. And it can't be too bright in there because if anybody else in the house sees that there's lights on, Everybody's awake. It has to, if anybody's awake, everybody has to be awake. And if anybody's asleep, everybody has to be asleep. I'm like, no, dear, I'm not going to bed at 8 o'clock tonight. I've, um, I might want to, but there's stuff I have to do. Uh, so, but the momentary happiness is not, it does not signal lifetime happiness. And in fact, when we parent children, when we invest in children saying this is a generational planting, we are believing the promise of God. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, dear ones, when you're making a family, you are building a house. And if it is not built upon the rock of Jesus, you're building in vain. Now, some of you have gone through your parenting, your grandparenting, your great-grandparenting. This does not mean this does not apply to you. But some of you are in the middle of this, and some of you have yet to have children. Build your life. When Jesus says, build upon the rock, not upon the sand, that that applies to you individually, but it applies to everything that you do. It applies to your work. It applies to your neighborliness. And it applies to you being in a family. Do what you do built upon the word of God, built upon the promises of God. Unless the Lord builds a house, we build in vain. Children are a heritage from the Lord. 
The fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. You know what you're supposed to do with arrows? You know what they're for? Tom, settle down. (laughs) Kill people. But that's true. (laughs) You go hunting, you provide. No, they're meant to be. The point I'm trying to get at, yes, they kill things. That's not my ultimate goal with my children. Um, But that they have to be shot. Right? They have to be, they have to go from bowstring and archer toward the target. (laughs) That means that my kids are not best served. They're not best served by living in my basement. I don't have a basement. By living in their room until they're 32, 40 years old. At some point, arrows got to be shot. Now, this, that's not a knock. I know there's circumstances. I know. But by and large, on general principle, a, a man-child living, playing video games in his mom's house, that's all he does, that where we have problems. The arrow has not sprung from the string. Yes, in this case, the psalmist is talking about children are good because they're going to help the psalmist defend the city. Particularly sons that are going to become warriors. Yes, yeah, so that's in view. It's not the immediate application of slay people. I love you, Tom. That was awesome. But you're right. But they have to be shot. And they have to be shot out. And they have to land. So where are you? And and consider, and now we don't do this anymore. But if you were, some of you might be uh, bow hunters. I was in in it before I had kids. And that was one of the things that I die to daily. I don't have time to do that. Uh, But, you know, you, you, you have to... You, you find the arrow shaft and you have to put the, the feathers or the, the fake feathers on there. And you put the, the broadhead or the training head. You have to crack and you have to work on, is it, is it straight? Is it balanced? Is it way right? Is it the right? What, I forgot all the stuff about it. And then you, but the intention is that as you put that arrow together. And, and during the psalmist day, there aren't graphite or steel or aluminum arrow shafts, right? We're talking about wood that has to be meticulously treated so that it's a straight arrow. It has to be sanded and shaped. The point has to be sharpened from whatever material. There's an intentionality that has to go into the arrow if the arrow is going to actually fly straight. And so part of what you're doing, parents with children still in the home, is that you're meticulously shaping that arrow to be shot out for the Lord's purposes in this world. Because God has a promise on that child's life. Sometimes Baptists, we miss this. God has a promise on that child's life as a son or a daughter from a Christian home. Yes, they... They, they're, they're responsible to coming to Christ and in in believing upon Jesus, repenting of their sins and coming to Christ, being baptized. But they have a promise on their life. Consider about all of the graces that they received. At least they ought to have received in your home. You bring them to church. You bring them to Sunday school. I hope that you're praying over your meals and you're praying at other times. You are teaching them the scriptures. And all of these things, you're disciplining them. You're setting clear expectations and clear ramifications when they cross those expectations, if you understand what I'm saying. 
I'm not going to tell you to spank your child. I'm not going to tell you to put your child in timeout. But I'm saying if you say something, do it. Carve out the boundaries for your child so they know. And what you're doing, this, is, this, this should really be a series of sermons. But what you're doing is that you're meticulously carving out an arrow for God's purposes in this world. Whatever it is upon that child's life. But they are inheriting graces that children in other homes don't have. That's what I mean by the promises of God are on them. They're exposed to the word of God at an early age. They ought to see a godly marriage and a godly man and a godly woman. They ought to be exposed to senior saints in the Lord in the church. You're building your life on the foundation of the rock of Christ. And you're carving this one out to shoot them out so that there's a new foundation. There's new ground taken. As this little one becomes a grown man or a grown woman. And their family builds a, their house upon the rock of Christ. They're carving out new ground for Jesus. That's kingdom work, y'all. A godly home is kingdom work. I just read it from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Talk about the word of God as you're coming out, as you're going in. Put it right in front of your head. Put it above your doorpost. Put it everywhere so that those children know the way to go. You seem unconvinced. The Word of God says, remember at the beginning, let us make man in our own image, God says. The triune God in counsel with himself says, let's make man in our own image. So, so humanity has a, a privileged position over the rest of creation. We're not Darwinists. We're Bible-believing Christians. Man has a place above the rest of creation. You bear the image of God. And you know why God put Adam and Eve in the garden, creates Adam outside the garden, places them in God's garden to work it, to protect it. But you know, the, the, so God says he blesses them. He blesses Adam and Eve and then he gives them a task. Do you remember the task in Genesis 1, 28 or so? God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply. All right, what's, what's after that? Subdue the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and exert dominion on creation. Extend the boundaries of the garden, the order and the beauty of the garden, that there are the raw resources are scattered throughout the earth, but make it beautiful. Create culture. But if you're going to create culture that is godly and God-centered, then it must be... That you invest in godly children. A, a culture is not born and does not die in one generation. A, I'll say it again because we're in the midst of a death throes. A culture is not born and does not die in one generation. You cannot expect to do everything that God has to do in this world and this time without thinking about the next generation. And it might be, I'm not, saying that if, I'm not saying if you don't have children that you're exempt from that. But the way that you invest in the next generation ought to look differently then. But every one of us, for our part, must take up God's will. God's will that the earth would be subdued for the glory of God. Now, I'm not just talking about going and building buildings and whatever else you think Adam and Eve had to do. But part and parcel to God's command to their life was that they would go and have kids. 
that one of the ways that they exert dominion, as they exert the rule of God as kings and queens under God, is that they would have children who would honor the Lord, who would take up the task of subduing the earth. And you're thinking, that's Old Testament stuff. That, that died. The sin screwed that up, which it did. But then you look at the Great Commission. There is a parallel. There's a parallel between God's blessing and commissioning of Adam and Eve and God's blessing and commissioning of the church at the end of Matthew chapter 28. You know that one probably maybe a little bit better. You know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So all of the authority that was yielded in sin to Satan's sin and darkness has been reclaimed by the blood of Christ. And he's saying, I have all authority in heaven and earth. Now go to all the nations. He told Adam and Eve, subdue the whole earth. He tells the church, go subdue the whole earth with the gospel. See hearts bent in believing upon the name of the Lord Jesus. But just as extensive is God's call to Adam and Eve, subdue the whole earth. It is as extensive when he says, go and disciple all the nations. Make disciples of all nations. There is a parallel reality. There is a blossoming of what God began in the garden. He is continuing it still through the church. So when I say plant sequoias, or Wendell Berry said it better than me. Plant trees. Understand that you are in the midst of a thousand years or a thousand generations of what God is going to do in this world. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But in the meantime, act as though your great-grandchildren are going to have great-grandchildren. And consider what this land This country, this place will look like if Christians begin to invest in their grandchildren and great-grandchildren so that they have great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren that are godly before the Lord. When we stop turning our eyes saying, the buck stops with me. Jesus is going to come back whenever. I'm going to get my stuff right and I'm going to kick my kids out the door when I die. I hope the little birdies fly. And no wonder our culture is in a death throw. Now, I've touched on a lot of complicated things that deserve a lot of nuance and a lot of unpacking. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, so right after the chapter I read with John and Kelly, the Lord is explaining why he chose Israel. Beginning at verse 6, he's explaining why he chose them. And he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. So he chooses Israel for a privileged position with God, a, a relationship with God. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, Israel above all, to be his own, why would he do such a thing? Certainly there was some goodness in Israel. Or that there was some great nation. Verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. So no, it's not because there's such a big deal. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. How long is a generation? I'm about to turn a generation. 40 years. What's 40 times a thousand? 40,000. Come on, y'all. 40. Now, I'm not saying we have to interpret it literally. I'm not saying it's automatically 40,000 years. But thousand generations, a thousand times 40, those are symbolic numbers that mean a whole lot of time. And the psalmist picks this up in Psalm 105, that God keeps his promise to a thousand generations, that he's made an eternal, everlasting covenant, that he's going to keep it. The writer of Hebrews picks up the language of eternal covenant in Hebrews chapter 13, by the blood of the eternal covenant, which is the blood of Jesus. There is a continuity between testaments here that the Bible points to, but that God is investing in long-term growth. And one of the means by that is that God's people subdue the earth by making more God's people. You do that through having children and training them up in the Lord and praying that they will come to know Christ. And you make more children in the Lord by sharing the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You're making a new generation of disciples. 40,000 years, y'all. I'm just going to use the word, understand I'm not meaning literally, but 40,000 years. What would it look like if we began to do ministry and live life for the glory of God, thinking in terms of 40,000 years? What would we build for the glory of God? What would our homes look like for the glory of God? What would the church look like for the glory of God? Well, how would we invest in education and business and economics and government for the glory of God? 40,000 years. So the work is multiplying image-bearing worshipers of God to subdue the earth with the gospel of Jesus. And I use the word subdue the earth because part of the gospel message is that you must bend the knee to Jesus. You must bend the knee to Jesus. The gospel message is more than here's Jesus Tuck this. It's like a, I have a, uh, an American Red Cross card for donations. And the only time I have to pull it out now, we say we're done. So the uh, only time I've had to pull it out in the last six years is when I either give blood or when we have kids to prove to the, uh, to the Cerebeth's doctor, OB, that I want my blood type. So she doesn't have a rope. And there's a shot. Don't worry about it. Oh, y'all, I'm not going to confuse you. Uh, but I have to prove my blood type. The gospel of Jesus is not my blood donation card so that you whip it out and you say, I get out of hell. The gospel is Jesus is Lord and he has died for you and every knee will bow. That's why I say I use the language of dominion and subdue because Jesus is subduing. He is our king who has subdued us to himself. He has conquered our rebellion. He has conquered our sin. He has conquered sin and Satan and death that he might bring us to God. He has bent our knee to say Jesus is Lord, something you only do by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. He has subdued us. And as the gospel goes out and people believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus, it subdues them. 
It is the power of God unto salvation. So God is raising up a generation of people. And you consider, consider right now, consider your life thus far, consider the home that you come from. It might have been a godly home, it might be a godly home, or it might not be a godly home. Was the home subdued to Jesus? Or was it subjected to sin, Satan, and death? And you consider now, when you talk about generational sin, how can that be broken? It can only be broken by the blood of Jesus and the power of God through the gospel. Seeing renewal happen, and then renewal happens in individuals, homes are transformed. And when homes are transformed, communities are transformed. And when communities are transformed, countries are transformed. But it must begin with you. 40,000 years begins today for you. For whoever is, you have influence on, whoever you have impact on, 40,000 years begins today. How will you build the next season of your life? Will you serve yourself? Will you focus on your own desires, your own will? Or will you bend the knee to Jesus? Saying, I'm going to plant redwoods, sequoias that I never see grow. But I'm going to do things now. I'm going to pray in such a way. I'm going to share the word in such a way. And I'm going to live in such a way that my grandkids are going to have grandkids. And they might know the Lord. And that takes a certain type of life now. Because everything this world tells you right now says that the end is you, the, your end is the end. So live it up and do what you want now. Find your purpose. Find your expression. Find whoever you are, your identity, and live now. And the gospel says, no, this is our Father's world. This is our Father's world. And He is bringing it to new creation. There will be a restoration of all things. And part and parcel to the restoration of all things, where everything is set right, sin is finally gone, Satan's finally gone, death is finally gone, part of the restoration of all things in the new heavens and the new earth is that every knee bows. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. One day, dear one, your knee will bend. Either in this life, it'll be with joyful submission to Jesus as Lord saying, Jesus, you tell me how to be a father. You tell me how to be a husband. You tell me how to be a mother and a wife. You tell me how to be a church member. You tell me how to serve in my community. You tell me. I don't tell you. Joyfully submitting to Jesus as Lord. Or dear one, if you will not yield, if you will not submit yourself to Jesus, your knee will bend. And when that day comes, if your knee is not bent, if you are not submitted to Jesus' lordship now, and it requires the forceful hand of God, then I promise, promise you will be broken in the process eternally so. Everyone in hell bends the knee to Jesus. Satan bends the knee to Jesus. The demons bend their knee to Jesus, or they will. So why not now? 
Why not submit yourself to Jesus now? This is, this is so much a part of the gospel, but it's so infrequently shared. I'm not saying come and try Jesus out. I'm not saying, well, this might be true. But I'm saying you are putting yourself in eternal peril if you will not submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And let him order your homes and order our church so that he, there might be a church and a land left when our grandchildren and great-grandchildren have great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Forty years begins with you today. Surrender to Christ. Surrender your life for the first time and experience transformation, transformational change in your life today. Or Christian, quit listening to the world. Quit being discipled by social media. Quit being discipled by Facebook to be angry and embittered all the time. Quit being discipled by Instagram to be internally uh, discontented with your life. Quit being discipled by the news broadcasts and the billboards. Quit being discipled by your unbelieving family and neighbors and come and fall on your face before the Lord and say, I surrender to Jesus. 40 years, 40,000 years begins with you today. Begins with us. Surrender and we will surrender our home. We will surrender this church so that God might bring sequoias, might birth them from our children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are glorified in rescuing sinners. And I pray, O Lord, that if there are some here who hear my voice, that they don't know you, they have not surrendered, they're living for themselves, they're living for their own pleasure, they're living to showcase who they are to other people, they still feel like they're figuring out who they are, all that kind of stuff. I pray that right now, your Holy Spirit would take these words, that Jesus is Lord and has died for them and has risen, and that you would drive it home into their heart, O God, that you might bring new life forth from them, that where only sin and death reigned in those people, Lord, life might now reign as Jesus is Lord. I pray that you would give us a long view, that you would give us vision for the length, generational change for our homes and for our neighborhoods. As we see the everyday interactions with our kids and grandkids and that we would see the seeds of eternity and that we would act like it, that we would love them in light of eternity, that we would discipline them in light of eternity, that we would teach and train them in light of eternity, that we would teach them how to have joy and recreate and play in the backyard in light of eternity, that we would have those hard conversations and times of discipline in light of eternity. Lord, would you give us godly homes and godly homes bend the knee to Jesus? So, Lord, have your way with us. Work amongst us and bring new life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.